Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. I know we finished up with uh, Romans chapter 3 last week, but again, just so we can keep within the context of this letter, we'll go ahead and uh, read some of chapter 3 and work our, our way right on into chapter 4 this morning. So, Romans chapter 3, starting down in verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, and that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews Only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 4. What then? Shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So here again, the Apostle Paul is directing a good portion of this letter to a group of Jewish people that firmly believed that their works saved them or their heritage, who they were. They were automatically a saved people. And they also thought that um, because they were Jews, that it was, like I said, it was just their birthright. You know, they, they they were bound to be saved. And scriptures indicate that these Jews always boasted about Father Abraham. But Paul says there that in the flesh, when it it came to his works, Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. And staying in the context of this letter, we remember that we read last week also in chapter 3 that there are none that do good. No, not one. I may have just read that to you here again this morning. There are none that do good. No, not one. 
So again, we understand this morning that everyone needs the gospel. And that's been the theme we've talked about for the past several weeks we've gotten together. Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone must come to faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, if not for God, so loving the world and becoming flesh himself and dwelling among, among us, giving us his only begotten son, right? If not for him going to the cross and being crucified, buried and dead and risen, then there would be no hope at all for any of us being saved because again, not one of us is good enough to merit salvation. So God gave us Jesus Christ as a propitiation, a substitute, someone that was going to pay the penalty, pay the price for our sin. And to these Jews in Paul's day, speaking this way about Abraham, not, you know, the the way they reverenced Abraham and and he was everything. And don't get me wrong, we've studied about Abraham. Abraham was a good and godly man. But Paul's trying to point out to them it wasn't their heritage. This is not what it's about, right? But Paul telling them this kind of stuff was somewhat of a slap in the face to them. Now, for an ex- Paul wasn't the only one that dealt with this when it came to speaking to the Jews about Jesus Christ. Jesus had to deal with this same thing as well from them. Let me show you. Let's go ahead and mark this page and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 8. So toward the front of the, the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament is Matthew, and you have Mark, Luke, and then John, and we're looking for John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading down in verse 31. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, just a quick side note here. Um, notice a prerequisite that Jesus gives here in verse 31. He said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Many people today profess to be Christians, especially in our nation here, right? But they have no clue what the word of the Lord says, the word of God says. These people, therefore, are not disciples of Jesus, as Jesus puts it here, right? And and most likely they just have a head knowledge of Jesus as a historical figure, someone that once was here, right? Um, If we, though, profess to be a follower of him, then we should be of those that abide in his word. We abide in the Word of God, which is why I take the time to teach it in the manner I do, that we might learn it and and plant ourselves in it. You know, abide means you'll get a picture of just planting ourselves firmly in living obediently to what is written, okay? Not just, as I often mention the Scripture, not just being a forgetful hearer, 
right? But being a doer of the works, being someone that actually lives what the Bible says. This is what Jesus means by this abiding in his word and being his disciple, okay? When you picture a disciple, it's somebody that comes to learn from somebody else and to then live like that person lived or wants them to live. So we are to be disciples of Jesus. Now, another thing, though, that we see there in verse 31 is that Jesus is speaking to those Jews who believed him. So he's not speaking of a group of people that don't believe him at all, right? They don't believe in him at all here. He's speaking to this group of Jews who do. And coming up in verse 33 here, this is what I mean by these Jews taking the words spoken about Abraham, you know, and how they can get kind of defensive about that. In verse 33, it says, They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will, you will be made free? Well, first of all, that wasn't even a true statement, right? Weren't they in bondage in Egypt? <laughs> and weren't they captive several other times, you know, after that? They were always in bondage. Well, of course, Jesus is pointing out to them, as the Apostle Paul is pointing out to us in Romans, that we're, in, we're all in bondage. We were all in bondage to sin, right? Sin easily besets us and weighs us down and tears us down and eats us up and puts us on the wrong path in life and gets us distracted from the will of God. So in that sense, we're all in bondage. And that's what the Apostle Paul was pointing out to them. But there are many people even today that say, I'm, in, I'm not in bondage. I'm not in sin. I, I'm, I, I'm a good person. You know, I've never murdered, I've never done this, whatever. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none good, no, not one. So anyway, they say we are Abraham's descendants here. They keep coming back to that, just as Paul had to deal with the same thing from the Jewish people. Jesus answered in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. So they're saying again, we've never been in bondage. And he's pointing out, no, you're in the bondage of, of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Okay, so Jesus explains to them here that they need to be set free from their sin no matter what their ancestry is, no matter what their background is, right? No matter what religion their mom was or their dad was or whatever, right? We need to be set free from sin. And the good news of the gospel that Paul is explaining back in in Romans is that Jesus is the only one that sets us free. And Jesus himself here made the same statement. You shall be free indeed if the Son sets you free right? So we need a Savior because we're in bondage to sin. And we're not good enough in and of our own selves and in and of our own works to earn salvation. Abraham, like I said, he was a good man. And as good of a man as he was, he was only accounted as righteous because he believed God. He was obedient to God. He believed God right? He believed what God said. He believed God's spoken word. 
Today, you and I are accounted righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, right? And we, as Jesus says, we are to abide in his word, to plant ourselves in it and to walk in it, to be his disciple, to do what it says and to live according to his will. Let's just stay here in John for a few more moments for a few more moments here. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Again, they're so stuck on this righteousness about their ancestry, about this man, right? How many religions today look back to a man, whomever it may be, a leader, a certain person within that religion, and they look back to that? I point you back where the Bible points us, and that's just back to Jesus. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the Scripture says, And that's Jesus. He's the only mediator. I'm not a mediator between anybody and God, right? No pastor is. No priest, no pope, no bishop, no elder, no whatever. Anywhere out there. No one is a mediator between God and man. Only Jesus is, right? So they're fighting with, sticking with their tradition here and proclaiming who they are in Abraham. And again, many people do this with their religion today. And verse 39 continues, Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the the works of Abraham. But you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. So we see here the mentality that Jesus had to deal with. This is why I wanted to take you into John here, just to show you that that's the same mentality that Paul had to deal with. But there's nothing new under the sun. The same mentality exists on the earth today. They refused in that day and people still in this day, whether Jew or Gentile, refused to believe in and place their faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ because they'd rather go through life doing it their own way and living the way they want to, right? So many will get angry at you if you try to tell them they need Jesus in this day and age. Family members may get upset with you if you indicate that they need to come fully to Jesus Christ because they may just profess, well, we, I've been a blank all my life and fill in the blank religion, right? I've been this all my life. I've been that all my life, right? So people don't always accept it. People do refuse and fight against the gospel, fight against the word of God, right? Go ahead now and turn back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and in verse 4, Paul continues speaking and he says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So what's being said here is that if it's by works, that people think they are saved like the Jews did. They thought, well, this is our religion. We have this law. We keep this law. We do all these works, right? In in this religion, we, we dot all the I's. We cross all the T's, right? Well, then, if that's the case, you're sim- Paul's pointing out that you're simply trying to pay off a debt that you owe. 
I'm trying to become right with God through the works that I do. This is how I can become right with God. If I just do these things over and over and over and repeatedly, I can become right with God. So you're trying to pay a debt, right? But we've already talked about the fact that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God is the standard. Think about that. The glory of God. That's the bar that has been set, right? In other words, in order to be righteous enough for heaven to be right in God's eyes, we have to be equal with the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To be righteous enough for heaven, we have to be equal with the glory of God. So which of us, by our works, by our own works, by our own deeds, can get there? None of us can ever attain to that, right? So what we need to do is simply accept the gift of God's grace that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And we receive Jesus Christ through faith, right? And I'd rather just accept God's grace. It's the, the, the best way. I'd rather turn from my sin and abide in Jesus Christ than be his disciple and turn to his word. That's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's all based on faith in Jesus Christ, right? If I had to pay off the debt of my sin, I'd have no hope. I'd never be able to do it if I had to pay for it. But Jesus paid it all. The old song says, the old Christian hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So verse 5 says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So there it is, plain and simple. Believing on Jesus, abiding in Jesus and in his word like he said, right? Being born again through faith in Jesus, this justifies a person. This justifies the ungodly. And then that person lives a life in which that faith has been accounted to them for righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So in this letter to the Jews in Rome, right, Paul has mentioned Abraham. And now he brings up David, King David, right? So let's turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 32. Let's look for Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32, and let's start reading in verse 1. It says, a psalm of David, a contemplation. Now, 
I want us to pause right here because that tells us something, doesn't it? Well, first of all, it tells us that David is the author of this psalm, right? Uh, the psalm is a contemplation. Now, a psalm is a song. David was a musician. He wrote these songs and sung these songs, right? But this was a is a contemplation. And if you pull if you pulled up Webster's Dictionary and you looked up the word comp, comp, contemplation, the number one definition for that word is concentration on spiritual things as a form of private devotion. So concentration on spiritual things as a form of private devotion. That is what the word contemplation means, right? So do you ever do that? Well, I believe that we all should do that. We should concentrate on spiritual things as a form of private devotion. In other words, get alone with God. Go into a room, close the door, whatever. Get alone with God Meditate on the Word of God. Seek God in prayer. Contemplate on spiritual things. So as we read this psalm, though, that's what David wants us to do. That's what this psalm was all about. Verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Okay? So how often do you stop and think about that? How often do you remember what the Lord has done for us? Right? If you want to know what spiritual things you can take time to contemplate on, well, this would be one of them, right? Jesus said that he always wanted us to remember his death till he came again. When he sat at the Last Supper with his disciples and he broke bread and he had the wine and he passed it around, he wanted them to remember his death, he said, until he comes again. So Jesus wants us to remember not just that he died, Right? But that he died for us. What his death did for us. Right? It, it, our sins are covered. Our transgressions are forgiven. Like David says here in the psalm. Right? You see, when we find ourselves miserable and depressed, it helps to remember how blessed we are because of Jesus. So verse 2 says, Blessed is the man, or blessed if you will, is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. Now that word Selah there is like it's like a break in the music is what it is, but it's a, it's a, in a contemplation, it's a break to pause and think about what's being said, you know, what's being said here, pause and think about this, take time. And when you go through the word of God and when you study the word of God, I encourage you not just to read it, but to actually sit down and contemplate what you're reading. Think about it, verse upon verse, right? Just think about it, Okay. So I acknowledge my sin to you, he says in verse 5, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Think about that, right? So now we see David here 
he, he talks about another key component of salvation, and, and that is repentance. He acknowledged his sin and confessed it to the Lord. Many today believe in Jesus, but have not repented from habitual, continual, willful sin. But when one truly repents, when they truly trust in the Lord, they place their confidence in Jesus and what Jesus has done for them, they, be then, they, they then become a disciple of Jesus, someone that wants to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of Him and abide in His Word. And they begin to walk through this life and commune with God, right? Never wanting in their heart to betray the Lord or never willfully wanting to return to their sin or return to the ways of this world and begin to live like the rest of the world does. They're seeking after righteousness and holiness and they're seeking after God as a disciple of Jesus. In verse 6, David continues, For this cause everyone, is, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters... They shall not come near me. So David is expressing his confidence in God and expressing the fact that, that everyone who is godly should, should pray and seek God while he may be found. Because we still live in a day and age where God may be found. There is a time coming when all of this, as we now know it, will come to an end, when this earth will melt in a fervent heat. And this time, as we now know it, will, will, will be over with. But God still may be found. People can still seek Him and know Him through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule. Now, don't be confused here, but when David's singing this song, it's, it's kind of like he's expressing what God has done for him, but he's also expressing what God does for all. You know, So as we read this, I will instruct you in the way that you should go, in verse 8 there, and I will guide you with my eye. I believe it's correctly capitalized there, that word, my in verse 8, because this is speaking from what God does for us, from what God will do for us. And he says in verse 9, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, right? Which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come to you. So in other words, don't be hard-hearted, don't be stubborn, don't be you know, a, a mule head, right? Many sorrows, verse 10, shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. So he's distinguishing here that person that trusts in the Lord from that person that's hard toward the Lord and won't do what the Lord says. The person that trusts in the Lord is the one that will do what the Lord says. Be glad, verse 11, in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So you see, when you contemplate, the salvation that the Lord has offered to all the world by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Blessed, you're blessed. Blessed means, oh, how happy, right? Oh, how happy you are. And you realize 
that as we persevere, as we press on, God surrounds us with deliverance and He will guide us through this life by His eye, those that trust in Him. And He wants us to turn to Him though and to completely trust in Him to lead us every step we take through this life, right? And flipping back now to Romans chapter 4. So David spoke of this blessedness. Paul speaks of this blessedness. And how, which again, which means, oh, how happy, right? Does this blessedness, he says in verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So here, the Apostle Paul is again addressing these Jews based on their religion, based on their law, and Paul's saying, does this blessedness in verse 9 then come to the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised? Okay, is it just for you Jews? You think salvation is only for you? Is this just all about you? Right? But he drops a bomb on these Jews here. And and he says, you know, Abraham's faith was accounted for righteousness before the works of his flesh. Now, if you remember back when we studied Genesis, that was indeed true. Abraham's faith was accounted as his righteousness before the works of the flesh, before he went into the works of the flesh. We must understand that salvation cannot be earned by works, and that's what Paul is pointing out here, right? Salvation is not earned by the tradition or the religion you grew up in, the church you grew up in, whatever it may be. We cannot work our way to salvation, nor are we born automatically saved because of our parents' religion, or whatever it may be, right? But you know, after we come to Christ by grace, through faith, after that, we find that we now have a desire within us to do good works because of Christ in us. We want to do what's right. We want to do what's good. If one is truly saved, they will not continue long in the sin of the world and living in a worldly manner when they're truly saved, right? But today, many people think that they can continue in sin and still be saved by grace. This mentality is not the true teaching of grace. This is a perversion of grace, okay? Because the Holy Spirit is is in the person that has been born again and has truly become a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that Holy Spirit is leading them into all truth. The Holy Spirit will not lead them into sin, a sinful lifestyle. And if one is truly led by the Spirit, the Bible says if you're led by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It just won't happen. So again, Paul points out here that the works of Abraham came out after his faith, and his faith was, uh, was what God counted him to be righteous for, not his works, his faith 
made him righteous. Okay, Verse 11, still speaking of Abraham, Paul says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are, are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So in this sense, Abraham is not the father of the Jewish religion. He is the father of all who come to God and all who are made righteous by faith, right? He is the father of the faith in that sense, okay? The righteousness of faith was not something new to the time of the New Testament. Righteousness by faith traces all the way back to Abraham. Faith is what justifies us, right? And that specifically is faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of Jesus Christ, what he has done, right? And then our faith will show works because faith without works is dead, okay? The one in whom our father, um, the one in whom our faith, excuse me, is placed in, like I said, is Jesus Christ. This is true for both Jew and Gentile because there is no other name given under heaven whereby someone can be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that. There's no other name under heaven given whereby one may be saved. Verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. This is what God spoke to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, like where, when we read it, right? As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. This means that many people would come to God and Abraham, and it would be established upon, upon what God established with Abraham, and that was faith, not the law. That didn't come at that time, right? It was established upon faith, okay? In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believe. Now keep in mind as I read these verses right here, the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? Very, very old, 100 years old, God telling them they're going to have a child, they believed, Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, right? So it says, again, I'll read part of verse 17 there. In the presence of him, capital H, whom believed, 
God who gives his life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah did not believe they could have children at this age, right? Who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Okay, so we clearly see what Paul is pointing out here, and that is that Abraham was justified before the law was given. And in verse 13, 14, and 16, we see the word promise. You see, Abraham was justified by believing God's promise, not by obeying the law, because the law through Moses had not yet been given. The promise to um, to Abraham came as a result of God's grace. Abraham did not earn the promise. This was just God's grace at work in Abraham's life, just like it's God's grace at work in our lives today through giving us His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that we may be saved. Okay? So God today justifies the ungodly not because they obey religious laws, Right? Not because they're part of this church or that church, but rather simply because they believe in, they place their hope in, they place their trust completely in the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when one truly does this, oh, how happy or how blessed they are. Right? You see, the law was not given in the Old Testament days to save men but rather to show men that they needed to be saved. And Paul points this out in his writing. He said the law was a tutor. It showed you that you couldn't do it. It showed you that you, you, you couldn't obey the law. You couldn't keep all the righteous requirements of the law. You fall short. So you need something else. You need a Savior. And that's Jesus Christ, right? And the fact that Abraham was justified through faith and not the law, proves that salvation is for all of mankind, not just one group of people, right? Anyone can come and be accepted in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. It doesn't matter. Anyone and everyone can come. And when it comes to this fact, the Apostle Paul saw this as a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 17, 5, where that verse is quoted from that says, I have made you a father of many nations. Paul's pointing out this is the fulfillment of that. This is what God meant when he said to Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. In other words, it's going to be all about faith. It's not going to be about the law. It's not going to be about your works. It's all going to be about faith. And verse 19, and not being weak in faith, Speaking of Abraham still, right? And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he didn't think about that stuff. He, it didn't phase him. He didn't say, oh, you know, come on, right? I mean, we know God was like, I mean, Abraham was kind of taken aback by this, but he moved on in faith to what God said, right? But let's talk about some of the key components of Abraham's faith here. Again, he and his wife were old. Put yourself in his shoes, right? When, when something seems just completely impossible to you. And often we can have things in our lives that just seem completely impossible 
to us. But if God is for us, who can be against us? And if something is God's will, then well, nothing is too difficult for Him. Nothing is too difficult or impossible for God. If we are committed to and submitted to the will of the Lord being done in our lives, if we've truly repented of our sin and we place our faith in Jesus, we become His disciples, we abide in His Word, He promises that if we seek first the kingdom of God, if we make the kingdom of God a priority in our lives, then He will supply all of our needs. He will take care of us. But are we willing to surrender? Sometimes we hold on to things because it just seems impossible to let go. It just seems impossible that I'll let go of this. I'm not just talking about sin, but things we trust in. You know, God calls some people to the ministry to to drop everything and go to this foreign land or, or go to this other city or do this or that, right? And they've got to drop their career. And that seems impossible to them because they've been relying on their career their whole life. They've been relying on their job. They've been relying on their retirement account and all of that stuff. And now it's sell it all and go and do that, right? Well, it may seem impossible with us, but nothing. And that's just one example, you know, of, of things that we, uh, you know, face in our lives, that we can face in our lives, right? So we need to be confident that, that God will take care of our every need. Let's turn, I'll show you here in Luke uh, chapter 12. So again, back to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then Luke. Find Luke chapter 12, because it's good for us to remind ourselves often of where our focus should be as we go through this life. Luke chapter 12, and we'll start reading in verse 13. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So right off the bat here, we see someone's mind is focused on their money problems, right? And they bring this to Jesus. Verse 14, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now that's a pretty powerful verse there and a very easy one to just look over. Jesus is saying there that he doesn't get involved in those kinds of things. He came to get us focused on spiritual things. And verse 15 says, and he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, because that's what's in this man's heart, covetousness, right? When he asked the question, divide this inheritance, I should be getting what I want. I should be getting what I deserve. I should be getting something out of this. Right? Jesus doesn't say, Jesus doesn't sit down and give them financial advice here. He cuts deeper in and he looks into the heart and he speaks to what's in the heart. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. But yet, how many people today think it does, right? The one with the most toys wins, right? And then the other bumper sticker is the one with the most toys still dies, right? It, it, it doesn't matter what you have, okay? 
Beware of covetousness, Jesus says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses, right? So we can't allow ourselves to be focused on so much on money, and many people do. They focus so much on money that they love money, and they cover it, and they take care of it, and they you know, they just do all they can to be so focused on it, right? And as a result, 1 Timothy 6.10 says that they end up being pierced through with many sorrows. That's what the love of money does. It pierces people through with many sorrows, right? Um, Proverbs says, riches surely make themselves wings and fly away. You know, money comes and goes. It just evaporates from you, right? But that's not what the Lord wants us to be focused on. That's not what He wants His followers to be focused on. Verse 16, Then He spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And He thought within Himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? In other words, this man is saying here, I have great earthly wealth. I have so much stuff. What should I do? Today, in our materialistic Christianity, one might go to the Lord and pray, Lord, should I get a storage unit or should I move into a bigger house? Should I invest, Lord, in in this stock or that stock, Lord? Lord, should I buy this car or that car, right? But these are not spiritual matters that concern the Lord. The Lord cares about who we are internally. And, and, and that we're not people that are covetous and are looking for this world and storing up treasures here. So he said in verse 18, uh, th- this man in this story that Jesus is telling, so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words here, this man is preparing for his retirement, his easy days, the times when he can kick back, right, and live large and in charge, right? But verse 20 says, but God said to him, full this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So Jesus says here that the day we die, we're taking nothing with us, Most people just leave behind a big mess of materialism for other people to clean up. And he says in verse 21, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's where Jesus wants us to be focused as his disciples, being rich toward God. Our wealth should be stored up in the things of God, spiritual things. And here's the thing that you and I need to be often reminded of, starting in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, now notice he turns to his disciples and he says, Therefore I say to you, this this is us, if if we're a disciple of Jesus, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. In other words, they're not storing up and worried about, hey, I got to be prepared for my retirement and hey, I got to have this or that, right? Birds aren't doing that. And God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds, right? 
And this may sound silly. I've mentioned this before, though. But I, I really encourage you to contemplate on the birds sometime. Look at how God takes care of them. Look, look. You know, do, do they seem to be full of stress? They're, to me, they're lean, mean flying machines, right? And every day, God's providing for them. And we're so much more valuable than God, right? Or to God, excuse me. We're so much more valuable to God than they are. Verse 25, And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. So, do we trust enough in, enough in God to know that he will supply all of our needs? Are we resting in God? Are we giving our whole lives completely to trusting in God, right? We've already seen in the Psalms this morning that we will be happy, we will be blessed when we contemplate on what the Lord does for us, on what the Lord has done for us, and just simply not counting our sin against us. And we see that God wants to take care of our every need. But if we are too focused on the things of this world, it eats us up. And what does Jesus want us to do? Verse 31, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There again we see. What's the focus that Jesus is? On our heart. Our heart. He cares about where we are in our heart. Not the external things, not the material things, right? Focusing on heavenly things, focusing on, focusing on things of God, causes us to be at peace. But focusing on earthly things causes, to be, causes us to be worried and anxious. And flipping back again to Romans chapter 4. We, I'll give you a second to get there, but Romans chapter 4. We're seeing that Abraham didn't consider the flesh when it came to the promise of God. He was focused on what God says and on what God wants, right? And verse 20 of Romans chapter 4. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Again, he being fully convinced. All of that I just read, we just went and read in Luke chapter 12, right? We need to be fully convinced of that, that God wants to take care of us. And we can fully trust in God. Right? So today many things about this life seem hard. And 
impossible and we don't understand it. We don't understand why certain things happen or why things go certain ways, but we just must commit and submit to God and know that His will will be done. Faith is the way in which God wants us to walk. By faith, not by sight. We want sight. We want to see it. We want to touch it. We want to taste it. We want to hold it, whatever, right? We, we don't, but God wants us to walk by faith in Him, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in the material things of this world, our bank accounts, our retirement plans, but trusting fully in and completely in Him alone, okay? And getting back here, verse 23, now it was not written for His sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. In other words, this wasn't just for Abraham alone. It's for all the world. Anyone can believe in Jesus, okay? And verse 25, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses. Think about that. Do you ever take that personally? It was your offense, it was my offense that put Jesus on the cross and was raised because of our justification. He was raised from the dead and we've been justified because of Jesus Christ, right? Paul brings it back here to our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, we must believe the gospel message that Jesus was delivered to the cross because of our offenses. And by his resurrection, we have been justified. Our Savior is alive and we are justified by faith in Him alone, not by religious works. Now when it comes to that word justified there, what does that mean? Well, one of the best explanations I've heard from that, I think I originally heard it from Billy Graham, but it's just as if I'd never sinned, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what we are in Christ. That's what happens in Christ. Again, He paid it all. Though my sins were as scarlet, He's washed us. He's washed us white as snow. Now I'm as snow. Now I'm justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. But the fact of the matter is, is I know I have sinned and we all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. But I want to contemplate on the blessedness of the fact that my transgressions have been forgiven. My sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what do I do with the blood of Jesus Christ? What do we do now that that has happened in our lives? Right? Do we trample that blood underfoot and just continue to walk in the sin and in the ways of the world? Or do we become a completely different person, surrendering our lives completely to Him, trusting in Him, putting all of our faith in Him, desiring to be His disciple? Desiring to abide in His Word, right? What do we do with Jesus? And what do we do with all that He's done for us? How then shall we live now that we know these things and that we've seen what He has done? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for Your Word, Your powerful Word, God, that just cuts in to, to the heart of us, Lord. That's where you do your work. Man looks upon the outward appearance. We ourselves as individuals so often get caught up in looking at the outward, the materialistic side of life. But you look upon the heart 
and you do your work within our hearts. And we thank you that by your Spirit, you continue to do so. You continue to to lead us and, and to guide us into all truth. Lord, I just pray for all of us here this morning and for those that are listening that we will continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of you, God, that your will would be done in our lives and that we would surrender more and more each and every day, that we would take up the cross daily and follow after you, that is to die to ourselves every day, Lord, and to, to be people of God who are your disciples and who abide in your word, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your love and what you've done for us, Lord. We remember your death. We remember that, that, that it, was our, it was our offenses that put you on that cross. And we thank you for it, Jesus. We thank you for the blood you shed. We thank you that you are alive and well, that you rose from the dead, that you ascended into heaven, and in some day, in like manner, you will come again. And for now, we must press on in the faith and continue to walk by faith and not by sight. So God, again, your will be done in all things, we pray. And we thank you for this time again in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.